0: Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and not per usual, I'm not joined by Rachel or anybody else. Instead, today I thought it might be fun to go back, uh, look at some of the podcast episodes that we've done in the past, hit some of the highlights, uh, and just share some of those with you so you can remember them as fondly as we remember them. Some of these uh, were a lot of fun. Well, all of them were a lot of fun, but some of these were uh, especially interesting to us because they Cover a couple of topics that uh, are particularly of note uh, in what we do day to day. One is just sort of general estate planning type topics. So we'll talk about some of those. The other are some international topics that we've covered from time to time. We do quite a bit of cross border work in our professional lives, and so we really like those topics a lot. And then also a couple of uh, snippets just on kind of general financial planning. So we're just gonna jump into a few of these uh, for any topic or any guest or anything else that is not included. It's not because they're being excluded because I don't like them, it's just because there was only so much time and I had to pick a few and so these are the ones that made the cut. There are so many other episodes that we've enjoyed. Uh, We've really enjoyed putting them together and the content and the topics and the guests and we plan on continuing to do these podcasts And having guests and presenting hopefully useful content so uh with that just by way of introduction here then the first two clips you're going to be listening to are uh, from rachel and then me we're talking about in the first clip vacation homes and what to do with the vacation home and then in the second clip we're talking about the secure act and in particular how trusts or certain trusts can be used to try to quote stretch out payments from uh, IRAs under the secure act. So here you go. So I'm not, I'm not leaving the state to get a vacation home. I'm just buying a, buying a vacation home in my state. What is your kind of go-to advice for clients in that situation?
1: My go-to advice, uh, would be, well, first just asking them what's, what's the plan, right? Again, are we passing it? I'm assuming we're going to want to pass this down to, to children. So if we're going to pass it down to kids, Um, I first want to ask them who's using the property really, really regularly, right? And so if it's just, let's just say mom and dad, mom and dad are using the property regularly. Kids aren't really using it yet. Maybe down the road, the kids can use it. Um, but right now it's just mom and dad, um, or are mom and dad renting it. At certain times of the year when they're not using it are they Air- airbnb in that property um, i want to get an idea of all of those questions first just because i want to know potentially how what what type of agreement is going to be the best way to memorialize what they want so for example with the airbnb the reason why i ask that is because if you have a third party coming into your home And there potentially could be an incident that happens on the property. You want to limit your liability. So in that case, I might recommend putting that property into an LLC instead so we can limit exposure. So you don't lose all of your assets because of one one horrible event that happened. Otherwise, um, if let's say you're not going to be renting out, it's just going to be a family vacation home. I would really recommend putting it in your trust. Um, Let's put it into your trust right now so that your trustee controls it, so that we don't have to worry about incapacity issues. and then um, it can flow with your estate plan. And then if we want your children to use it upon your passing, let's say you've got several kids and let's hope they all get along. Um, but if even if they don't, then we can memorialize all the terms into the trust agreement on exactly who gets to use the property, how you know, how, how long they get to use the property for. And then who gets to pay uh, property taxes, who has to pay the uh, any repairs, improvements, things like that. We want to put all of those details into that trust agreement just so that there are no questions. We can try and kind of reduce the amount of bickering between the family as much as possible.
0: So as a very general reminder, what the SECURE Act said was that rather than a beneficiary who's not your spouse and basically not a disabled child, uh, being able to Stretch out your IRA, stretch out the distributions from your IRA when you die over their life expectancy, which could be very long, you know, 20, 30 years. Instead, they have to take all the money out in 10 years. And really, by the end of the 10th year after the year in which you die, that's really the technical rule. So, but it's effectively a 10 year rule. So, by that end of that 10 year period, uh, they have to have drained the account down to zero. And that was a big departure. That was actually a money raiser in Uh, The SECURE Act intended to raise money for the federal government, not today, but in the future, when people who are beneficiaries of, say, an IRA uh, receive the IRA as a beneficiary and then had to take the money out sooner. Because the sooner you take the money out, the sooner the federal government taxes you on the money. And when the money comes out, it gets taxed at the maximum tax rate that applies to you, the recipient so the issue became one of uh basically two uh parallel although distinct uh concerns i'll say so concern number one can you stretch out the payments beyond 10 years is there any way to get around this little 10-year rule and stretch out the payments beyond 10 years okay that's the first uh issue second issue was uh how do you make sure that the lowest possible tax rate is the tax rate that is going to be applied to the money when it comes out and there's sort of a a third somewhat related concern which is goes something along these lines, maybe parents does not want child to be able to take all of the money out of the account whenever child wants to, because perhaps the child is not uh, very trustworthy, not good with money. They might have uh, some creditor issue or a spendthrift problem or a dependency problem, et cetera. Dependency in a uh, uh, substance abuse context, not uh, children. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Children dependency in the children context is not a quote unquote problem. So just to be clear, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just to be clear for everybody, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, So there were basically four trusts that have sort of been uh, tossed around by practitioners that I thought we should discuss because these are these are ways to accomplish these goals in some fashion. So the first trust is called a secure stretch trust, secure stretch trust. Okay. That's the first one. The second one is called a charitable remainder trust. The third one is called a qualified subchapter S trust. It goes by an acronym QSST. And some people pronounce the acronym QIST, which is fantastic. Have an acronym and then call it Twist. Why not? Right. Why not? And then the last one is a beneficiary defective income trust or a B DIT. Also goes by an acronym BDIT, DIT. Okay. And it comes in a couple different varieties, but we'll just call, it, we'll just talk about that particular variety. Okay. So these are these four trusts that. Estate planners have kind of come up with to solve this riddle. And the idea would be you would name this type of trust as the beneficiary of the IRA. So you're not naming your child directly as the beneficiary of the IRA. So let's start with the secure stretch trust numero uno. Doesn't mean it's the best one, just means it's coming at you first. So in no particular order, the secure stretch trust uh, works as follows. There is a little nuancey rule in the IRA rules that says if a an IRA owner dies and fails to name a beneficiary or they have named a beneficiary who is a non-individual, then one of two things happens. If when they died, they were beyond the time when they were supposed to start taking required minimum distributions, which right, right now is age 72, so after age 72. If it's beyond the, the time when they're supposed to take required distributions the rule is you have to take the money out at the same rate that the owner had to take the money out meaning over their life expectancy if however they die before that day there is a five-year rule that's akin to this new 10-year rule so after the this a five-year period after they die you have to have drained the account down to zero so the five-year rule is bad and then the rules say something to this effect if You name a trust as the beneficiary of the IRA, IRA. the IRS will pretend that even though a trust is not an individual, that the trust does not exist. And instead, the IRS will peek through the trust and look inside the trust to figure out who are the actual beneficiaries of the trust and look at those individuals or non-individuals, as the case may be, to determine whether the IRA itself has been treated as having named an individual or a non-individual as the beneficiary. The crux of the matter is if the trust says the trustee must pay out directly to the beneficiary all of the withdrawals from the IRA, the IRS will only look at that one beneficiary or at the beneficiaries who get those distributions from the trust, it's called a conduit trust. If instead the trustee can accumulate, hold on to even $1 of a distribution from the IRA, the trustee has the ability to do this, to hold on to even $1 of any distribution from an IRA. Instead of just looking at the beneficiary who could get the distribution now, the IRS will look at all the beneficiaries who come after that person. And that is called an accumulation trust. And The problem with the accumulation trust historically was that most trusts uh, either name a beneficiary or theoretically name an estate or the state of the IRA owner's demise or residency as a beneficiary in one way or the other. And when you name one of those things, they're non-individuals and naming even one non-individual will subject you to this five-year rule. If the IRA owner died before age seventy-two, or now this, or this uh, distribution over the IRA beneficiary's life expectancy. So if they die after age seventy-two, so that that's sort of the context of the rules. That that all may sound like a bunch of random, non-important information. So let me try and explain why it's important information. The life expectancy, if my memory serves me correctly, the life expectancy of a 72-year-old is something like 17 years. So if you have an IRA benefit uh, owner, who dies after they turned age 72, and their life expectancy would be 17 years. 17 is longer than 10. And therefore, you would want your trust to be an accumulation trust that has a non-individual as the beneficiary. This is the premise of the Secure Stretch Trust, because under those circumstances, the trust will withdraw money. The trustee can accumulate the money in the trust. They don't have to, but they can. And the trust has 17 years to drain the account down to zero. And somewhere between age 72 and age, age 82, uh, you sort of run out of room here because I think the, the life expectancy of like an 82-year-old is is less than 10 years, just slightly less than 10 years. So at age 82, the benefits run out. And so with the secured stretch trust, what you would say is you would name the benef- the trust as a beneficiary in the IRA, and then the trust would say, hey, if the owner dies in this age range, then the distribution scheme of this trust will will match an accumulation trust. And if it If the owner doesn't die in that age range, then it'll be a normal conduit trust and we're going to use the normal new under the secure act 10 year rule. So the trust will have 10 years to take the account down to zero. So in that way you have solved for the, how do you make payments longer than 10 years? That's the premise of the secure stretch trust. That's the first one. All right. So those were fun. It was fun sort of reminiscing uh, on those conversations. So, changing gears here, then, we've had a number of podcasts that were on international topics. Uh, They've ranged from uh, countries, uh, but we had a few guests talking about a couple of different countries in particular. So, first, you'll be hearing a clip from one of our episodes. In fact, uh, there were two episodes, but one of the episodes with Fernando Barraza about U.S. Mexico planning. And then you'll hear a clip from Rodrigo Cotin about US Colombia planning and finally you'll hear a clip of our conversation with Paul Taylor about US Canadian planning so you get to go uh, sort of uh, south south and then north Mexico Colombia and then Canada here you go
2: so there was a lot of questions of what these fideicomisos fide comisos are and should they be reported to the US government you know not to you know I don't want to get into the weeds of things but a couple of years ago there was a, a, um, a revenue procedure that uh, provided some additional guidance that those specific fideicomisos were not to be treated as trust in the in, in, of, of themselves more like contracts between an individual and a bank institution that was creating them in order for them to hold title of the property therefore allowing them to not treat them as trust and not have to file special tax forms with a with the US that you know that would treat them as trust but you know, this this very long introduction is to um, mention that when a U.S. individual is investing abroad and not using SA or SDRLs or any other type of entity and using more a fide comiso, they have to be careful in that there might be two things to consider. Informational filing requirements are, are, are you know, the first thing, but then there might be some income tax consequences that they, they might not see coming because fide comisos can be seen as business trusts, for instance. Where it is a, um, it's, it's, it's more closely seen as a trust, but from a U.S. tax perspective, it's more like a corporation, which kind of blows people's minds. You know, you can have a fide comiso. In Mexico, the way they explain it, it's a trust. You know, that individual, they kind of now, you know, trusts are very complicated to understand in and of themselves. So they kind of already got it in their head that it's a trust, but then all of a sudden, it's not a trust from a U.S. tax perspective. It's more of a, like a corporation.
3: But the truth of the matter is that we have tax reforms at least every two years. In the last three years, we had two. And the government is already talking about another one. Um, so, so, so we have changes all the time. We have changes in terms of, let's say, income tax withholding rates. We have changes to the income tax rates. So you have to be extremely careful. When you do your planning, uh, let's say inbound planning into Colombia, if you are going to invest in real estate, for example, you have to consider uh, which is the taxation at the national level, which for you is going to be the federal level, but also you have to consider which is the treatment at the level of the municipalities, for example. So you, you, you have to really, really, really plan before doing the investment and being prepared um, for a different treatment where you are trying to do the repatriation of the cash or the income because the rates are going to change. However, it is a great market. It's a market that is growing in all fields. Even with the the pandemic going on, uh, we have seen certain sectors that are still moving. Uh, So it it pretty much depends on the type of investment that you will have, uh, in the type of services that probably you provide. Um, So you, you the recommendation will be, you have to plan before, you need to have sound advice before just investing into the in, into the country.
4: And so another big thing that we've seen in Canada recently is a discussion on housing prices. Um, and so housing prices in Canada have just skyrocketed through the pandemic. Um, and so one of the things that they actually did in the budget in the spring, um, was to propose a speculation tax, and, and that's something that, again, the 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 parties are um, that at least the a couple of the parties that are looking likely to win are, are looking at uh, at following through. Uh, and the idea there is essentially, if you are not a Canadian, if you're not a Canadian resident, um, and you have property that's not occupied, um, there's an extra tax on it. Um, so. We've already done that at, at the provincial level in some jurisdictions, um, but the idea is to do this on the national level, because I think there's a thought that in some hot markets, especially sort of Vancouver and Toronto, that uh, that this is a big issue. Um, so that they're hoping to cool that, but at the same time, you know, they're coming up with a bunch of different ways to get first time buyers more money. So, uh, you, know, you're, you're, you know, at the end of the day, I think in Canada, we have really we have a supply problem that, that it's tough to fix with tax cuts.
0: All right. So those were well, wow, those are a lot of fun for me to to re-listen to uh, because I remember those conversations uh, and recording those episodes with those guests. Uh, they're just all swell human beings. So we had a lot of fun with them. All right, to close this out then, just a, just two r- quick clips. These are more on the financial planning side of things. First is Anna and Giaconte. She's talking about kind of what makes a successful financial plan. And then finally, Tyrone Ross, who was giving us his view of cryptocurrencies uh, and, and uh, Bitcoin somewhat generally on a holistic scale. You know, he was sort of uh, giving us his opinion of what it means. What does that market really mean? Uh, and what does it fu- its future look like? So hopefully you'll enjoy these two clips. So Anna first and then Tyrone.
5: What I find is having a focus and it, and having a concrete sense of what you're trying to achieve is oftentimes the most valuable, right? So if you look at, you know, some of the most basic um some of the most basic struggles that people have, if, you know, they're, maybe they're not particularly wealthy, but they're trying to, you know, save well and, and for their future. <clears throat> if you don't know why you're saving or investing or why it's important for you and you don't have concrete goals, I think then you just end up kind of flailing and not making much progress, right? Um, even on the higher wealth level, you know, I, my, my previous employer, you know, we didn't, work with any, most of our clients were between 10 and $20 million net worth, right? Those are very wealthy people. Um, and even there, you would see a, a great variety of commitments to a purpose, right? There were some clients who, you know, they had annual family meetings and they had charitable, you know, um, charitable mission statements for their family. And they really had clarity around what they wanted their wealth to be doing for them and their family members and the support the, the um, causes that they supported. And I found that they were the ones that were most successful and also just had the most success in terms of transferring the wealth to their children, right? So all across the board, it's the having the focus, the why, and the, the driving factor. And then from there, you can really get to optimizing, you know, creating different types of um, structures or, or investing in different types of accounts and, you know, tax planning and all of those kind of really important things that are valuable that we do. But if the client doesn't have the clarity on what they want and why they want it, then I find that they just don't make much traction.
6: But even in the sense of being able to transfer value, me to you, nobody involved, powerful. The immediately to, meet, to send money to anybody right now, super powerful, not have to wait you know, for KYC, AML, all of those different things. So I can go on forever with this but then you have, if you look at Ethereum, which is a derivative of the Bitcoin blockchain, and then what is going on there with borrowing and lending and interest and all this, the financial system being recreated still goes back to Bitcoin. So it's very interesting how, and I didn't even get into folks that are, again, where their you know, currency is being hyperinflated away and they're using Bitcoin as currency. I'll end on this note. What is happening in this country is there's a war against cash. And if I know anything about growing up in a home and being around people in communities where they don't have debit cards, credit cards, all these other things, cash, prepaid cards and gift cards are they rule the day. If you take cash away and people are forced to use digital payments or whatever, two things happen here. One, we have a nation of folks who don't are not digitally literate. They don't know how to transact using wallets or apps massive hurdle the other thing is cash is folks who work under the table cash is people again who don't have identity not because they want to be nefarious but simply because they just got to this country we all know family members and friends that came to this country and started working they got their dollars in their hand and they made a way and the last thing is the ability to have access at all times now like right at this moment i can send the money or get the money that i need so when you put all of that together, it is damn hard to look at Bitcoin and crypto and go, is there's nothing there, <laughs> right? It absolutely is, but when you've been at the the lower rung of this country and you look at the class issue that we have in America. We have a bigger class issue than we have a race issue by the way. Race issue was put on front street last year. When we start addressing the class issue, oh man, it's going to be a hard time because we have a major class issue And there are a class of people who just don't have access to any type of financial services because they are shut out. Crypto is going to force the hand of legacy financial systems visa, right, to make this all inclusive. So it's a really interesting time. So it's it's exciting, but I just love the fact how this is going to help so many people that grew up like I did.
0: All right. Well, there you have it. Those were uh, tremendously fun for me to relive uh, and re-listen to. Uh, again, I remember having these conversations and having these guests on the on the podcast, they were all a blast to chat with, and I, I always learn a lot uh, from other people. So partly doing these podcasts is selfish because I'm trying to learn things, and I like to learn things from smart people. So we invite smart people on to talk to us about stuff, and then we learn things when we talk to them about these things. So uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to do the podcast. It's been a lot of fun reminiscing here I appreciate you joining me once again and uh, tolerating this little trip down memory lane for me but hopefully you got some value out of it uh, and enjoyed it at least partially as much as I did Hey, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information, and I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media, at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.